Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Guide to Existence. As always, I'm your host, Gabriel Horan, and I will be leading you on a journey today through the Torah portion of the week, a little bit into some of the Jewish holidays on the horizon, and we'll touch on some Kabbalistic themes through the lens of Jewish mysticism and try to come up with some practical spirituality. And this week's Torah portion is Titzaveh. And I have never given a class on this week's Parsha before. And the reason for that is because this week's Parsha normally doesn't exist. Did you know that? Normally, there are certain Parshas which are always stuck to another Parsha. They're always attached to another Parsha, unless it's a leap year. And this year happens to be a leap year. Actually, I don't know if this is called a leap year or the opposite of a leap year. I don't know what the opposite of a leap year is in English. But this is a year where we actually have an extra month. This is a year where we don't leap. Does that make sense? Is this an anti-leap year? A slow year. In Hebrew, it's called a pregnant year. So this is uh, an extra month that we're in right now. It's well, actually really the next month is the extra month. We're in Adar 1. And next week is next month is Adar Shani. There are two months of Adar this year, in order, as we've discussed many times, to keep the Hebrew calendar corresponding not only to the moon but also to the sun, because as we've mentioned, the solar year is longer. Solar month is longer than a lunar month. Uh, a, a lunar year is 11 days shorter than a solar year, and therefore, if you don't add a month every few years. So then the seasons, the, the Jewish months will start to fall out in different seasons. Just like in the Muslim calendar, Ramadan is constantly jumping around the calendar, which actually I learned something cool about Ramadan this, this week. Um, I just was looking on Canva to try to make a flyer for an event. And I saw they had something called Eid Mabrik, which I did not know about. It's a special holiday at the end of, of um, Ramadan. And what's really cool about that is it's Aramaic. Because I, I understand it. I told my kids, we know how to speak Ar Arabic. There are a lot of correlations in Arabic and Hebrew. I had a whole conversation one time with some uh, on campus with the Arab student union, student union uh, students. And we were just talking about different words that are the same in Hebrew and Arabic. So aid in Aramaic is the way you say holiday, which is what it means in Arabic as well. And it falls out in the Talmud. And the Talmud discusses the meaning of that word in Aramaic, actually what it means, and uh, which comes from the word testimony or, or, te um, or, or um, witness, aid. And then Mavrik is like the Hebrew Mivarak, Mivarak, which means blessed. So it's a blessed holiday in, in Arabic. Anyway, sorry for uh, teaching you something about Islam tonight. That, I'm sure that's not why you came. But um, so the Jewish calendar takes into account the solar and the lunar calendars, and therefore we have to add a month every few years. To be precise, I think it's twice every nine years, I believe it comes out, but I could be mistaken, I always forget. So this week's Parsha is normally stuck to another Parsha. It's usually called Truma Tetzava. The last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha usually go together, except in a non-leap year when it is on its own, because we have to spread out the Torah portions evenly across the year. So um, so I never set a class on this week's Parsha. And um, 
but that's actually quite fitting because this week's Parsha is actually a hidden Parsha. It's a Parsha that doesn't usually get talked about all that much. And another reason why I never set a class on this week's Parsha is because this week's Parsha always falls out right before Purim. And since it falls out right before Purim, I'm usually talking about Purim. And this week's Parsha just gets like the uh, swept under the rug, or you mention it a little bit in passing, but it happens to be in deeply and intrinsically connected to Purim. And we'll discuss that as well, because this week is actually coming up Purim. Now, I'm sure you're surprised to hear that because you didn't get your costume ready. You haven't made any hamantashen. So how could it be that Purim's coming up next week? So the answer is, is that, like we mentioned, there are two months of Adar, and each month of Adar has a Purim. So next week is what's known as Purim Katan, the little Purim. The 15th day of Adar Rishon, of the first Adar, is the little Purim. And we don't read the Megillah, and we don't, well, some people do get drunk on the first Purim, and some people get drunk every day of the week. So um, you can celebrate Purim, but uh, the real Purim is coming up uh, a month from now. But it's a hit, it's a little bit of a Purim, and it's the beginning of 30 days before the next Purim. So it's time to start getting into the Purim mindset. And we spoke a little bit about Purim uh, of last week, and we'll continue to speak a little bit about it today. So this week's Parsha begins, is essentially the entire Parsha is devoted to the clothing that is worn by the Kohanim, the priests in the, in the temple when they're doing their service in the temple or in the tabernacle. Last week's Parsha was all about building the tabernacle and the vessels that go in the tabernacle, the menorah and the altar and the table. And in this week's Parsha, we actually talk about the clothing of the priests that are going to serve in the, ta in the tabernacle, in the temple. But the, it but it begins with something totally unrelated, and that is as follows. It says, "Atetitzava, you should command Espen Israel, the children of Israel, and that they should take to you or for you shemen zayasdak, oil pure olive oil, kasis lemaor, which is crushed." For lighting, for illumination, to illuminate an eternal flame. And this is the mitzvah of creating the oil which is used in the temple. And the mitzvah that we'll discuss today, since there aren't that many mitzvahs in this week's parsha that are relevant really to us, the mitzvahs are really just about the clothing that the Kohen wears. Um, but this one is interesting that preparing the oil for use in the temple. And I'll tell you just a few things about this oil. The oil that is used in the temple is specifically the first oil, the very first oil that is gathered from the olive tree. And there are actually three different stages that olives would be harvested. First, you take the olives that are at the top of the tree that get the sunlight. Those ripen first. Then the second level olives, the middle tier. And finally, the third level olives are at the bottom of the olive tree. And there are three stages to, to pressing and extracting the oil from those three groups of olives. First, you put very heavy planks of e either stones. If you go to Israel, you could see in some of the archaeological sites these giant stones, round stones that they would put uh, an olive press. They would put olives under. And you s first, you soak the olives. Then you put 
very heavy stones on top of them, and the oil begins to run out. And that very first oil is the only oil that's kosher for the lighting of the menorah in the temple. That's called the first of the oil. It's supposed to be the most pure and pristine of the oil. Then those olives are taken out and they're crushed. They're smashed to get even more oil out. And then the smashing, the mushed up olive gunk, is then put under beams again and more oil comes out. So there are three steps. The very first one is kosher for the lighting of the candles of the menorah in the temple. Something just interesting to point out, which is totally unrelated to what we're going to talk about, but I think it's a beautiful idea, is that the, the, Tal the Mishnah, the Talmud explains that the, of those three levels of olives, the very, very best is the first olives. The first ripening olives are the best quality olives. Okay? And the, all three levels of oil that emerge from those first batch of olives is better than the oil that comes from stage two and stage three. But for the lighting of the menorah, you can use either stage one, stage two, or stage three olives, as long as it's that first oil that comes out of it. So just an idea that my friend once shared with me from this idea is that you see that whether you're the best, the second best, or the worst, the best of the worst is equal to the best of the best. You get it? That the first oil that comes out of the first batch is kosher for the lighting of menorah, and so too the first oil that comes out of the last batch, which is a lower quality of olives, but the first of it is also considered equal to the best of the best, which means to me that whatever you've got, if you do your best, it's just as beloved and cherished before God than the best of the best person that ever lived, of Moses' best. We're all equal. It's all about the effort. If you put in your effort, you are a winner. It doesn't matter what your results are at the end of the day. It matters how, if you give it your best. And just like your parents say, it doesn't matter if you win the game. It matters that you try your best. It's true. The Torah agrees with that. Okay, so, all right. So now the questions are as follows. First of all, there's something really important that's missing from this week's Parsha. Does anyone know who is missing from the Parsha? Who? Oh, Moshe. Where'd you hear that? On your own, you saw it? Oh, wow. All right. They're good. They're good. So we're going to go deeper into this idea. Moshe's name appears in every single Parsha of the Torah from the time of his birth in Exodus, Shamos, until his death, the last book of the Torah. Moshe appears in every Parsha except for one. Forty Parshas is, has Moshe in it except for one. This one. Mo why? Where's Moshe? Right. Moses, we need him. He's not here, okay? And no, good guess, but we don't, so certainly not, not that reason, no, because there are a lot of partials that go together. And Moshe appears in every single one of them. Let me add another interesting point that just hit me this second. Of all weeks for Moshe's name not to appear in the Torah, it's this one. What's significant about this week? 
in relation to Moses. Yesterday was my son Sruli's birthday. Now, when Sruli was born, we had a dilemma. Sruli just turned six. Now, we wanted to name him Yisrael after my wife's great-grandfather and after the Baal Shem Tov, who was Yisrael. But then he was born yesterday, six years ago, and we had a major dilemma because yesterday was Zion Other, the seventh day of the month of Other. And when Surly was born six years ago, it was also a leap year. There was a double Other, and Surly was born in the first Other. And there's a big problem for us because Zion Other is a very famous day in the Jewish calendar. It is the birthday and the Yurtzeit of a famous Jew. Does anyone know who was born on Zion Adar? Moshe, Moses' birthday. So we had a problem because we wanted to name Yisrael, but it was Moshe's birthday. So I said, maybe we should name Moshe. Maybe we should name Yisrael Moshe. So I didn't know what to do. And so I called my rabbi and he said, you could do whatever you want. You have prophecy. Remember, we've talked about in the past, when a person names their child, they have a certain degree of prophecy. And he said, you can do what you want. It's your prophecy. He said, but if I were you, if you really want a name after the Baal Shem Tov and your wife's grandfather, you should stick with the name Yisrael. Just give that name. If you add the name Moshe, it's not going to be the pure name that you want to give. But I was really, really uh, didn't know what to do because I felt like it's not respectful to Moshe. My son's born on Moshe's birthday. It happens to be... This week's Parsha with no Moshe. Moshe's not in the Parsha. It's the week of his birthday. Interesting, right? It's also the day that Moshe died also, his Yerzeit. So I will get back to at the end how we named our son. If I didn't tell you this story before, it's an awesome story. But um, let's come back to it at the end, okay? Please remind me. So no mention of Moshe. Why not? And the Zohar, the primary text of Kabbalah, mentions a reason. And this is, uh, this is discussed by the Rishonim as well, the late the medieval commentaries who give explanation for this. The Zohar says Moshe's name is not mentioned in the Torah because in next week's Parsha, the Jews commit the sin of the golden calf. And God threatens to destroy the Jewish people and to build a new nation with Moshe as the father of this new nation. And Moshe says, forgive this people. And if not, erase me from your book. And the Zohar says that because Moshe said, erase me from your book, the commentaries explain that when someone, a righteous person says something, even if it's based on a condition, like if they say a curse or something based on a condition, like if you don't clean your room, I'm going to punish you. And the kid cleans the room, the punishment still happens. 
So you have to be very careful what you threaten. So even though Hashem did not destroy the Jewish people, Moshe was still erased from the Torah because of what he said in next week's Parsha. And where was he erased from the Torah? This week's Parsha. One Parsha without Moshe. So, you know, if you forgive their sin, then good. But if not, please erase me from the book that you have written. And then Hashem says, I will erase from my book whoever has sinned against me. And he forgives the Jewish people. So the, there's a problem. Does anyone have a problem with this teaching? That God says, that, that Zohar says, that Moshe was erased from the Torah because of what he said in next week's Parsha, that he said, erase me from your book. That's a great question. How was he erased last week's Parsha if he says it next week's Parsha? Good question. So the Torah is not in chronological order, per se. and um, But it's, that is a great question. Like, how did it happen? Like, he went back and deleted himself from the book? The answer is God exists beyond time. But that is a, it's an excellent question. And I'm sure there's a deeper answer to that. What, what else? Anyone else bothered by it? Yes. No, this this is not one of the weeks where he's up on the mountain, although that's an excellent point. It's not one of the weeks where he's up on the mountain. And in fact, what's interesting about it is that he is in the Parsha. He's in the entire Parsha, just not mentioned by name. Because the Parsha begins, and you should command the Jewish people to take pure oil. Who's God talking to? He's talking to Moshe. So Moshe's in the Parsha, just his name isn't mentioned. So it's a little bit weird to say that he's erased from the book. But another thing that bothers me even more, anyone want to take a stab at what's problematic with this teaching? It's almost like Moshe's being punished. Because he said, erase me from your book, he's getting punished and not appearing in the book. And that's, that's the way that it's explained by the commentaries. It's like a punishment. Oh, it's interesting. It's like God speaking to everyone, kind of. And um, some of the commentaries do touch on something similar to that stuff. So hold the thought. Okay, But it seems weird that Moshe is being punished. Because what did he do in next week's Parsha? He did like literally the greatest act that a leader can do. He said, I don't, I'm giving up everything for this nation. It's like one of the most beautiful acts of self-sacrifice in history. I don't want, erase me. God says, I'll make you the leader of the new nation. No, erase me from your book. If not them, I don't want any of it. And yet he's punished by being erased from the Torah. It seems kind of weird. And, and one last question is why specifically this week's Parsha? Like Steph asked, like you're going to raise him from a Parsha. Why this one? Why not next week or the week after? 
what's specific to this week's parsha that Moshe doesn't appear. So I want to share with you two contradictory verses in the Talmud. An attempt, wait, Jennifer, you want to say something? And I'm going to attempt, yeah. Yeah. Right. So some commentaries do tie it into that. I heard a couple of different ideas today that Moshe actually was supposed to be the Kohen, Godel, the high priest, and he gave it up to Aaron. And because he gave up this position for Aaron, there's a special connection to this week's Parsha, as we'll, we'll explore further. Excellent point. So the Talmud has two contradictory statements, and I want to share them with you. And I don't really know if I have the right answer, but I'm going to attempt an answer. I don't know if it really fits, but for us, it'll fit tonight. And maybe we'll work on it till next year and we'll come up with a better answer. The Talmud says in uh, Rashi quotes a couple of places in the Parsha, in throughout the Torah, that when somebody gives up their life, risks their life for another person, they become called after the name of that person, or that person be calls after gets called after their name. There are two examples of this in the Torah, and one example in the Talmud. In the Torah, I remember specifically one is it says that Dina is called the brother, the sister of Shimon and Levi. Uh, sorry, Shimon and Levi are called the brothers of Dina. Why? The Rashi explains because Shimon and Levi risked their lives to save Dina when Dina had been more or less um, molested by um, Shechem by the Chamor, the son of Shechem, uh, somebody from a neighboring town. Um, Shimon and Levi went and made sure to rescue her and avenge her, and therefore they're called forever. They're called the, the brothers of Dina. Why? Rashi says because whenever someone risks their life for somebody else, they're called after their name. They now become a a, a partner in Dina. She becomes part of them to some degree. Another place it says it. Um, now, I'm not recalling the other place in the Torah right now where it says it, but the Talmud says also that Moshe, who risks his life for the Torah, the Torah is called after his name. It's called Torah's Moshe. Interesting. So we see that there's an idea that when a person gives up, risks their life, what's called in Hebrew, Mesiris Nefesh, which literally means risking uh, giving over your soul but the literal interpretation means giving over your life for somebody you now become intrinsically connected to that person to the point that they get called your name and you get called their name okay that's one statement of the talmud but there's another statement of the talmud which is the exact opposite the talmud tells a story of uh, king david sent a few scouts to go 
retrieve something in a very dangerous situation and they come back and he repeats the teaching that they had, but he doesn't say their name. And it says that there's a tradition, the Talmud says, that anyone who risks their life over words of Torah, you don't say over the Torah teaching in their name. So it sounds to me completely contradictory. Sometimes you say the person's name becomes intrinsically connected to the thing by risking their life. And other times you don't even mention their name when you teach that thing. Okay, And I'm going to tell you one last teaching, which is related to Purim, which may be even more contradictory. I don't know. The, the Talmud says that when Mordechai, at the beginning of the Purim story, risked, uh, um, saved King Ahasuerus's life. He overheard two of the servants plotting to kill the king, and he ended up telling the king about it and saved the king's life. And it was written down in the book of, of Chronicles. And eventually, King Ahasuerus reread the book of Chronicles, realized that Mordecai had done a good, kind deed for him and was never rewarded. And he told Haman to go lead Mordecai through the streets of the city on the royal horse with the royal robe and crown and, and pronounced through the streets, this is what is done for someone. Who, who the king wants to reward. And that's the beginning of the end for Haman. And the Talmud says, you see from this, that whenever somebody says over a teaching in the name of the person who said that teaching, they bring redemption to the world. And it's supposed to be a very good thing to say teachings over in the name of the person you heard it from. So I have one of my students who, who was learning in yeshiva in Israel for a long time. And he used to always say my ideas in front of the whole yeshiva uh, on Shabbos, and he never attributed it to me. <laughs> so I told him, you missed an opportunity, but it's okay because I take my ideas from other people also. <laughs> anyway, um, so what's the idea of a name connected to Torah or connected to another entity, and what does it have to do with self-sacrifice? Sounds like a contradiction. So I believe perhaps an answer can be that there are two types of self-sacrifice and the importance of self-sacrifice. My friends, we in this world are so caught up in ourselves. I mean, let's be honest here. There's one thing we think about more than anything else, and that's us. Right? And... The problem with us thinking about ourselves so much is that it blocks out everyone else, right? If you spend your life busy with your own selfish needs, you're really disconnecting from your ability to connect to everyone else around you and to fill other people's needs. You ever notice when you meet somebody at a party and they introduce themselves to you there and, the, and it's like, this is, I'm going to replay for you exactly what happens when you meet someone at a party, okay? It's like, hey, nice to meet you. My name is... How are you? What's your name? <laughs> Does that happen to you guys? And you're like, you're like, what was his name? Like, what? Like, I, I didn't even hear it. Like, it was like, I was in a twilight, like, I was suddenly teleported out of this world. I'm like, I have no clue what they just said. Does that ever happen to you? Be honest. Yeah? You have a hard time remembering people's names that you meet? So why do we have such a hard time remembering people's names? Bingo. The whole time they're speaking, you're thinking, 
What am I going to say? What am I going to say next? What's my name? What do I do for a living? Where am I from? What's he thinking about me? How's my hair look? Do I have any stains? Is there something stuck in my teeth? Right? We are so self-absorbed that there's no room for the other person. We're so full of ourselves that there's no space for anyone else. My friends, this is the greatest problem in our lives. You want to have a relationship with somebody? You know what you first have to do? You want to get married? Everyone who isn't already? Well, you want to have kids? Say yes. Yes? So how do you have kids? Don't, don't, don't answer that. How, how, what do you need before you can have kids? Okay, good. You should get to know the other person. But I just meant physio physiologically. You have to have a womb. Right? If you don't have a womb, there's no womb for another person. Right? You have to have you have to make womb in your life for other. And that's the beginning process of relationship. It's making space. How do you make space? Well, when you're single, you are the only thing in the world that matters. You are your life is full of yourself. But the answer is you have to begin to open up room for other. And that's, that's really the process of creation. That's how Hashem created the world, was making space. That was the first process of creation, was Hashem making space within himself for existence. So, like we mentioned previously, the definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. All right? It's making room for others in your life, recognizing that you're not the center of creation, although we are. The Talmud says a person has to, has to say the whole was created for me. But the, the self-improvement masters, the Muslim masters say that you have to have two pieces of paper in your pocket at all times. In one pocket, you have to have a piece of paper that says the whole was created for me. In another pocket, you have to have a piece of paper that says I'm dust and ash. Why? Because they're both true. The whole world is created for us. Everything that happens is a, is a direct communication between the creator and us. Everyone else is a robot. Everything's all about you. But at the same time, you have to remember that we are dust and ash. What does that mean? That, that our physical desires are empty and vain. In the end, our body is going back to the ground. But our soul is the world is created for our soul. So when we live in the world focusing on our bodies, on our physical needs, there's no room for anyone else. But when we make space, when we open up the body and connect to what's inside the body, to what's infinite, so then there's room because the soul is infinitely connected to everyone else, infinitely connected to God. So the more we connect to the soul, the more, the more there's room for other people in our life the more we're able to really connect to others, as we, we've discussed previous weeks. So when we sacrifice ourselves, we create a an intimate bond with another because the greatest connection comes about by letting go of that which disconnects us. What disconnects me from everyone else is my body because my body and your body are disconnected. But when I get rid of the body, 
when I bring more soul into my life, so we're connected because on the soul level, it's the bodies that disconnect us from, from, from each other. So when a person sacrifices something that, that is meaningful to them, when they sacrifice something that their comfort or their money or their time for another person, what you're really saying is that my body is not primary because all my body knows is selfish desires. All my body is programmed to do is to survive at all costs. When I override that instinct for another person, I'm saying my soul is primary. What happens at that moment is I bring an influx of spirituality into the world. So giving up a person's life is, is the greatest act of bringing God into this world because they're saying my life is just a temporary state. The true existence is spirituality. Judaism doesn't say we should go up giving up our lives. We shouldn't go up blowing ourselves up or Allah or anything else. We should live. That's the greatest revelation. But in the times when there's a contradiction between our values and our life, we give up our life. Right? For, for three things. Normally we don't. Normally the Torah says living is greater than mitzvahs. But there are three things that the, it's such a contradiction to my value system that I have to just give everything up for, the, for that. So, and that's called the, the act of Messiris Nefesh, which is, brings the greatest level of holiness into this world. When a person, that's why I say, and you could tell me if you felt that as well, Jennifer, in Poland, that the concentration camps are not places of death and destruction, although they're also that but they're also places of incredible spirituality. And I personally felt in the gas chambers of Auschwitz that I was in the, in the holiest place because when people give up their lives simply because they're Jews, it does it, it makes literally, it breaks through the fabric of the physical universe and brings spirituality into the world. Very interesting thing. Don't try it at home. I'm not recommending, but it's a much greater thing when we can live for that when we can give up of the things that cause give us personal selfish comfort and pleasure for the greater good to help another person to connect to god is the greatest thing that we can do is giving up a little bit of ourselves now the torah said it doesn't say you're supposed to be celibate forever and that you're supposed to deprive yourself of self of pleasure but a little bit a little bit to train ourselves a little bit to be sent desensitized to our physical needs and sensitize to other people's needs will we'll make a huge difference. As we mentioned last week, last week's Parsha, that the greatest taking in this world is what you give away. When you give up, and now we're talking about not only giving away your possessions, giving away of yourself, giving away of your time and your energy and your, and your comfort for another. So I think that the Torah, perhaps we could say that the Talmud is teaching us that when we give up of our body, when we risk our body, we become part of that thing. When a person gives up, when Shimon and Levi risk their lives for Dina, now they're called Dina's brothers. Because now there's this deep connection because what you risk yourself for, what you sacrifice for, you, you're showing that you identify with that thing. You become part of that thing. But there's an even higher level. The highest level of self-sacrifice is not giving up your body giving up even your soul. There's a story told uh, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, and it's also told in the name of the Vilna Gon. 
who was like the anti-Baal Shem Tov, great, great leader of Lithuanian Jewry, who was anti the Hasidic movement. And the story told of both of them, that they both, their situation, I don't remember exactly what happened in the story, but they were told that if they did a certain spiritual act, they would lose their next world. They would lose their Gan Eden, their Olam Haba, their, their spiritual paradise in the next world. And they both said, great, then I can finally serve God for, for pure motives. I don't want the next world. I don't want reward. I want to just, I want to do the right thing because, I, because it's the right thing for pure motives. So, so what Moshe, Moshe did in next week's Parsha was he gave up not only his body, he gave up his whole spiritual legacy. He said, I, take me out of your book. I give up everything for the Jewish people. And because of that, he's punished to not appear in this week's Parsha? No, it's not a punishment. It's the greatest reward is that you are not even mentioned. You're so much part of the Torah, your name isn't even there. Because a name as signifies our existence. Our existence means we're disconnected from the source. The fact that we all exist means that God is hidden, means that we're living in a world where we are primary, where our ego exists. On the highest level, when we dissolve even our ego and we give up our motivations for our own spiritual reward and our own spiritual pleasure, then we aren't even there. Moshe's name literally disappeared. He became one with the Torah to the point that his name isn't even in it. By the way, welcome, Rebecca. It's been a while. All right. So. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. Yeah. There's a certain, there's a certain idea that when, when like, uh, there's a story in the Talmud that we had a few weeks ago in the, uh, in the Dafyomi cycle in the daily Talmud cycle a few weeks ago, there was a rabbi um, who was extremely poor rabbi in the Talmud who was extremely poor. And his wife said, why don't you do something? Like you're, you're, you're so spiritual. You're making all these miracles. Just do something. Get us some money. And he said, he said, are you sure? She said, yes, you have to do something. So he prayed and prayed. And then suddenly this golden leg appeared in their, in their house. So it's like a hand kind of came down or something. And this golden leg appeared in this house, solid gold, like leg of like a table. And they were like, amazing, we're rich, woohoo, we can finally eat. And that night they had a dream, I think, and they saw themselves in the next world. And they saw everyone was eating off of these beautiful golden tables. And their table was missing a leg. And his wife said, give it back. We don't want it. We don't want it. And they threw it up and it said this hand met this image of a hand came out and grabbed the leg of the table. The point is, is that the suffering we go through in this world builds us. It doesn't just build us. Really, it builds us. It builds, you all know that you became who you were through the hardships that you had in your life. Those are the times when you grew the most. 
those are the times that brought out the greatness, as the Ramban Nachmanides explains in the Torah, that tests are there to bring out your latent potential. Challenges bring out who you really are. But not only that, it also they build your next world. And we're meant to be poor in this world. This, this rabbi said, if you want to be rich in this world, it's going to take away from our next world. Because we were this challenges that we went through in this life was designed specifically for us in order to give us the greatest possible spiritual reward. But Moshe gave up his spiritual reward. And in doing so, he became pure spirituality. His soul literally signs, shines through the text. The whole Parsha is talking to Moshe. He's there, but his name is hidden. And that is the message of Purim. As we said, this week, next week, we're celebrating Purim Katan, the little Purim. Because for those of you who have been through the Purim holiday before, you probably heard from me. The, the Megillah story is, is a miracle from beginning to end. Unbelievable. The whole story is unbelievable. But there's something missing from the entire scroll of Esther. What's missing? Name of God. There's zero mention of God in the whole book of Esther. Why? Because he's hidden. That's the whole story of Purim. God is hidden, but he's running the show from beginning to end. The entire Purim story. Nothing openly miraculous, and yet every single thing that happens is unbelievably meant to be. And that's just like our lives. Right? We don't see God openly in our lives. At least most of the time we don't. And yet he's there behind the scenes running the show. That's the message of Purim. And it's the message of our life. We mentioned the oil. The oil at the beginning of the Parsha, the pure olive oil. Vegan. Organic. What, what makes olive oil so special? The Talmud says that the Jewish people are compared to the olive. Because how do you get that oil out? You crush the olive. And the Talmud says to the Jewish people, the more they're crushed, the more that their spirituality comes out, the more that their potential comes out, the more we suffer as a nation, the more we go through millennials, millennia, centuries, millennials, uh, millennium, whatever, of suffering brings out the 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 greatest potential and whether the holocaust was about racism or not whoopee the holocaust and the millions of other holocausts that occurred to us in our history is what makes the jewish people great it's through the suffering and oil is so unique because oil always rises to the top you can't mix it with any other liquid and that's the Jewish people. We're constantly, we're, dif we're different. We don't blend in. And that's, that's, a, that's an advantage and it's a disadvantage. There's another amazing thing about oil is that it burns. It has this incredible spiritual potential. And the fire, the flame of the candle is compared to the, to the soul. And oil in Hebrew, the word shemen, is the same letters as the word neshama. Because this oil is compared to the soul. That the more you crush that olive, the more the soul comes out. The more soul comes out of you. 
and and the message is that when we sometimes we have to break our body and i'm not telling you to do this don't do this don't practice that at home we don't believe in asceticism we don't believe in denying yourself physical pleasure but a little bit you got to deny yourself a little bit because it's the indulgence of the body which take which hides the soul but when we break the body a little bit when we overcome our selfish physical urges the soul comes out and it's an amazing thing that the more you cease to exist i mean the little you the ego you the more you really exist because then the soul comes out and that's the real you that's the real you so we talked about once a few weeks ago i mentioned the idea of embarrassment that when you get embarrassed when someone says something about you and you don't say anything back the talmud and many of the different uh spiritual teachings throughout jewish history say that that's the greatest medicine because when you can hold back that desire to say something against the other person to talk back to fight back to to defend yourself and you just accept it you're literally taking making a statement that i can be embarrassed i don't it's okay it's fine because not the real me the outside is not the real me the real me is on the inside that's who i really am and so it's deep stuff we'll talk about it more another time but so the message of this week's parsha is through the crushing comes out giving up of yourself comes out the soul and that's how you become intrinsically connected the more you cease to exist the more you really exist because when we when when we exist as a person when i i just uh steph steph inspired me to call this class the anti-super bowl class I didn't even know the Super Bowl was coming up. I, I mean, I kind of knew because I saw a lot of signs for Super Bowl food. But um, the 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 more we walk around thinking I'm the man, or for all of you ladies, I'm the lady, when you think that, or I'm the woman, when you think you're the thing, what you're really doing is you're you're making a tremendous mockery of yourself because you're nothing. You're dust and ash. The you that wants to be bigger, that wants to put yourself above others is is really just your body it's your ego the more you cease to exist the more you really exist you make the more you hide yourself the more you make room for hashem to come through you our job in this world our bodies are opaque our job in this world is to make them translucent to let the light of hashem come through us shine through us utilizing our unique talents our unique traits all of we're in this world for a reason. We don't believe the job, the goal is to nullify our ego. We believe the goal is to channel our ego, to let the light shine through us in our unique color. Because each of us has a unique color. Each of us has a unique instrument. Let the master conductor play us. Stop thinking about your agenda and think about what's Hashem's agenda. This is deep stuff. I understand. It's not. It's not. It's not for everybody. But um let me just let me say last point and take the question so i had a client in in therapy today and, and he was saying how his his brother-in-law always comes over and is always knocking him every time he's there he's knocking me making fun of my kids making fun of my job making fun of my stomach and i'm like wow i wouldn't want that guy around i said to him but wh where's it coming from why is the guy always knocking you and all of us who are involved in self-improvement know the answer. Why does a person have to knock another person? 
down because they feel bad about themselves. They feel small. They feel weak. They feel insecure. So it makes you feel bigger to knock another guy down. But it's like comical when you get it. It's like a joke. Like you're actually taking it personally. Like clearly the person over on the other side is insecure. So just feel compassion for them. Poor guy. He's got to knock me down to feel good about himself. How could I take that personally? So the people with the biggest egos are really the people with the smallest egos. Get it? But the people who are who have the true who connect to the source of true identity, which is to the soul, they don't need any ego. They're not even there. It's not about them. They're just literally a vehicle to bring goodness into this world through them. It's the more you exist, the least you exist. The least you exist, the more you exist. Get it? So in in conclusion, perhaps the reason that this Parsha comes out now, why did Moshe disappear from this week's Parsha? So as Jennifer said, some point out, because Moshe himself gave up of his role as the high priest for his brother Aaron. He gave it to Aaron, and therefore he's intrinsically connected to Aaron because he literally gave up of his own honor. But maybe we could say another answer is that this week's Parsha is all about clothes. They say clothes makes the man. What's so unique about clothes is that clothes hide you. They cover you. But you know what they also do? They also reveal you. Why? Why is Judaism so into clothes, modesty? Why are we so into covering up the body? Because if you walk around revealing your body, what are you telling the world? I'm a body. Look at me. Look at my body. When you cover the body, what you're saying is, my body is also just my clothes. My body is just covering up the real me who's inside my body. I don't want people relating to me as a body. I don't want to be people checking me out on the street for my body. I want people relating to me for who I am inside my body. So clothes cover up the body in order to reveal the soul. So too, Hashem, you know the word for clothing in French or in Latin or whatever, it's vestment, right? Vestments. The vestments of the high priest. Hashem invests himself in this world. You know what that means? To invest yourself, it means to enclose yourself. Hashem is invested in each and every one of us. You know what that means? Hashem is inside each and every one of us. He's investing in us. He believes in us. He's inside us. Hashem is hidden in the world. The world covers Hashem. Our job is to break through the shell to reveal the true existence, the light that is literally shining forth. So it's literally like like a, my friend said an amazing metaphor, which I don't fully understand, but he says it's essentially like an LED pixel. You know how a computer screen works? It's actually light that is blocked by different pixels. The pixels block the light. When the pixels are working, the light shines forth. When the pixels are broken, the light can't get through. So our job is to open up the pathways that the light can shine through us, not to nullify our existence, not to give up our identity, like perhaps in Buddhism, 
of not existing. No, we want to exist. We want the light to shine through us according to our unique color, but we're a pixel in a masterpiece puzzle. We want the light to shine forth that the puzzle should make sense and it only can exist with each and every one of you. We just can't be too thick to block the light from shining through because then the color doesn't even come forth. Then it's just like a black screen. You got to have some light coming through in order for that, for our unique color to be shared with the world. So wishing everyone a beautiful life of true connection to self and to soul and uh, disconnection from that which blocks us from being who we really are. Questions, comments. So in summary, thank you for reminding me. So my son was born, Becca, you were there. My son was born on Zion Adar on the 7th of Adar exactly six years ago. And that was Moses's, Moshe's birthday. So we thought we should name after Moshe. But my Rebbe said, no, you should really name Yisrael just Yisrael after uh, your, your, my wife's great-grandfather and after the Baal Shem Tov, if that's the name that we want, instead of combining the two names, Yisrael Moshe. We weren't thinking about just Moshe. We wanted Yisrael Moshe or just Moshe. And I did not make up my mind. My wife actually, for the first time in, in, uh, in our history, said, whatever you choose is fine. <laughs> that was like, she gave me a green card to or a white card, carte blanche, to come up with whatever name I wanted. And so we arrived at the Bris. This is in Albany, New York. And my Rebbe was there. And I said, what should I do? I should, he said, it's up to you. And the moil, the moil was, we, the, my Rebbe took a moil with him from, from Brooklyn, who was also a Hasidic Rebbe. And I still had no clue what I was doing. The moment before the Bris, I'm about to give a name. I had no clue what I'm going to do. So the moment of the Bris, I said to the moil, what, what should I have in mind while you're doing the Bris? And he said, you should have in mind, B'Shem Kol Yisrael, for the sake of all the Jewish people. And there's a Kabbalistic idea. When you do a mitzvah, have in mind every other Jew, because we can't all do mitzvahs at all times. But if we have each other in mind, we can all together do all the mitzvahs, right? Like a man can't do a woman's mitzvah. A woman can't do a man's mitzvah. A Kohen, we can't do a Kohen's mitzvah. But if we all have each other in mind when we do mitzvahs, so we're all keeping all the mitzvahs of the Torah. So, but literally what he said, he said, B'Shem Kol Yisrael, which means for the sake of all, all of Israel. But literally that means for the name of all Israel, for the name of Israel. So I had in mind, Yisrael, I realized Yisrael is the name. He's telling me, B'Shem Yisrael. And why is that so significant? Because Moshe is not mentioned in the Parsha. And yet he's in the entire Parsha. So the commentaries explain, the Orachayim HaKadosh says, that there's a spark of Moshe in every single Jew. The Jewish nation, Yisrael, is Moshe. Why? Because Moshe gave up of himself for the Jewish people. He said, erase me from your book. If you're going to destroy the Jewish people, erase me. He gave up from, of himself for the Jewish people, and therefore he becomes an intrinsic part of the Jewish people. So that is uh, the message, is that the name Yisrael is the name Moshe. Moshe is one with us, because Moshe is the highest level of our soul. And when we connect to the, the part of us, the deepest part of us, so that that's a connection to the spark of Moshe inside us. And that's why the Parsha says, remember at the beginning, Ata titzave, you should command the Jewish people. So the commentaries point out the word titzave is the, from the word mitzvah. What does mitzvah mean? 
commandment, right? Is that what you're going to say? Commandment. Literally means commandment. You should command the Jewish people. But the, the Zohar and the, points out that the word titzave, mitzvah, also really the root of the word mitzvah is from, comes from the Hebrew word safsa, which means connection. That a mitzvah connects us to Hashem. Connects us to God, connects us to each other. So what is it, what's it saying in this week's verse of Atta and you, Moshe, Titzava, connect yourself to the children of Israel, to the Jewish people. You're literally intrinsically connected because you gave up of yourself for the Jewish people and take for yourself this light, this oil, which comes from the crushing, which ends up creating light. It's through the crushing, through the breaking away of the ego that the greatest light shines forth. And that's uh, that's my message for you today. Pause.